0: Now, we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time.
1: Two percent of demand versus one percent of demand is, is a pretty big shift. Energy companies have changed a lot. You know, they're generating significant free cash flow. They're buying back their equity. They're offering attractive dividends.
0: Stacy, welcome back to the podcast. Great to reconnect.
1: Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here, Nate.
0: Okay, so to uh, set the table for our conversation, I guess actually the uh, Thanksgiving table this week, right? Uh, Let me give you the returns from a handful of ETFs, and then uh, you can offer your overall reaction or take, and we can go from there. So the Energy Select Sector Spider ETF, ticker XLE, that's currently about flat on the year. The Elarian MLP ETF, ticker AMLP, that's now up 22% year-to-date the Vanek Oil Services ETF, OIH, that's up about 4%, and then the Spider S&P Oil and Gas Exploration and Production ETF, XOP, is also uh, it's about 5%, a little bit more than uh, OIH. And just for comparison purposes, the S&P 500, so SPY, that's up 20%. And so I thought first Just give us the big picture here in in terms of key performance drivers across the uh, broad energy sector and and maybe some of the subsectors I mentioned. And then as part of that, I would love to have you talk more specifically about this disparity between the four ETFs I just noted. Like, why is AMLP up 22% but XLE is flat?
1: Yeah, I know. It's a great question, Nate. Um, And I think, you know, you coined it correctly when you said it's been kind of a lackluster year for energy. Um, you know, Broadly, we've seen weaker commodity prices this year relative to 2022, and you know 2022 is just incredibly strong, um, and this year has been weaker by kind of almost all accounts. Um, that said, you know, one of the big themes in energy this year has been M&A. So you have producers benefiting from M&A activity, whether that's a company like Pioneer being bought by Exxon or Hess being bought by Chevron or it's other oil and gas producers that are trading up in sympathy with that because people think they're the next target or there's deals that are rumored. Um, so that general dynamic I think is gonna be more helpful for XOP than XLE, for example. Um, and we've seen you know, benefits um, from M&A in the MLP space as well. You had a large MLP, Magellan Midstream Partners, bought out at a 22% premium this year. Um, you saw other MLPs trade up in sympathy with that. And then you've also got MLPs offering a yield around seven point seven percent right now. So that's also helping from a total return perspective. Um, and then finally, we've also seen strong dividend announcements in the MLP space, which you know help as a tailwind as well. But if you dig into XLE, you know it's about forty percent Exxon and Chevron. Both of those big names are down year to date. Um, Chevron has been particularly weak. It's down almost 20% on a price return basis. Um, interestingly, you know they reported earnings last month and they were down about 6.7% in one day, just on an earnings miss and some cost overruns and project delays uh, in Kazakhstan. So that's a pretty big down move um, in one day for an integrated major. But I think kind of the punchline here is that things that worked really well last year that are kind of your default energy investment options, you know, the XLE, Chevron, Exxon, um, those just are not doing that well this year. Um, and so I think for investors, the point here is that can pay to kind of take a look beyond those default options and look at other spaces that have you know, held up better this year.
0: Really interesting analysis. So going back to, for instance, the MLP space, it sounds like you think that MA activity, and then, obviously, the yield that you mentioned, maybe investors looking to that higher yield, has been the key driver there uh, in, in comparison to XLE, where, you know, the, the underperformance, shall we say, of Exxon and Chevron. I mean, does it really boil down to that?
1: I mean, I think those are key parts of it. Um, so it's really, you know, the weakness in Exxon and Chevron on one side, um, I think that's kind of helping differentiate um, what you're seeing in XOP and OIH versus XLE. Mm-hmm. And then on the MLP side, it is that juicy yield that you've seen. Um, it's, you know, that M&A activity that we talked about as well. And generally, you know, midstream is more defensive. These companies are generating stable cash flows. They're actually seeing higher EBITDA in 23 versus 22, which is unique among the energy space. Um, so there's other elements there as well. But I think you know, those are some of the key variables.
0: Since we last talked, obviously there have been some rather uh, significant and, and unfortunately very tragic geopolitical issues that have arisen in the uh, Middle East. What type of impact are those having on the energy space?
1: Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, it's just you know, absolutely devastating to see some of the headlines and news coming out of the area. But from an energy perspective perspective, um, if we start on the oil side, you know, oil initially jumped, but those gains have been, you know, more than washed out at this point. Israel doesn't produce oil, but there was initially concern that the conflict could have an impact on oil producers in the area or potentially interrupt oil flows from that region. Um, and Iran was particularly topical. Uh, Iranian oil production and exports have ramped quite a bit this year. If you look at Bloomberg data for Iran exports, they were exporting about 600,000 barrels per day of crude in December of 2022. And that had gotten up to over one and a half million barrels per day in August and September. So almost a million barrels per day swing just in their exports. Um, now, last week, President Biden's energy security advisor said sanctions would be enforced and Iranian exports would be coming down. And in October, they were back under 1 million barrels per day. So that's something that kind of continues to bear watching. But generally, from an oil price perspective, you saw a jump and then uh, it was pretty short-lived. On the natural gas side, Israel does produce some natural gas. Its Tamar field was shut initially after the attacks, um, And then Tamar resumed production earlier this month. But um, if you look at Israeli natural gas production. It's used for meeting domestic demand, but it's also exports to Egypt. And Egypt has LNG export facilities that ultimately feed the European market. So European LNG prices went from about $11 per million British thermal unit before the attack to over $15 shortly thereafter. Now, at the same time, there was also um, a pipeline issue in, in Europe that kind of impacted that as well. But, If you look at European LNG prices, they've come back down a little bit, but they're still pretty elevated above, $14 as of yesterday. So we've seen actually kind of maybe more sticky price increases on the LNG side than on the oil side.
0: When you mentioned uh, LNG prices and and exports, it's interesting as I was looking at – the uh, list of, of energy ETFs and, and certainly not to talk your own book, but I know Vetify is behind the Roundhill Elarian LNG ETF that launched in September, ticker LNGG. Uh, how do these geopolitical issues or even some of the other drivers you were mentioning earlier tie into this ETF? And maybe you could also explain exactly what this ETF holds.
1: Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, broadly, a, a stronger price environment is probably positive for the, the index. We can talk a little bit more about that. But just to explain what the index is, it's a global index of companies that are engaged in the LNG industry. So companies that liquefy natural gas, that ship LNG, that regasify LNG at the destination so it can be used. Um, it really includes players across the LNG value chain. Uh, The biggest holdings are names that people may have heard of or may not have heard of. Um, The largest holding is Chenier, which is a pure play liquefaction name in the U.S., Um, but it's followed by two Australian LNG producers, Santos and Woodside. Um, The index also includes your global majors that are involved in the LNG space, like Exxon, Chevron, and Shell, but their weights are about 2%. So, Mm that really differentiates this index from a lot of other energy indexes that you'll look at that tend to be dominated by those larger market cap names. Um, So from a performance perspective, you know, I think broadly we see structural global demand growth for LNG. Um, If you look at estimates, they're pointing to demand growth of 60% or more to 2040. And these companies are really helping to meet that demand. So some of the drivers behind that demand is Things like coal-to-gas switching as countries try to reduce their emissions. Um, Just a general need for supply security and reliability, as we've seen um, issues with supply over the last year or two. Um, There's economic growth as a driver, particularly in Asia. And then you also see people using natural gas essentially as a backup to solar and wind and helping kind of offset some of that intermittent power. Um, So I mentioned LNG prices also kind of being a driver here the index is up over 20% in 2021 and 2022 when you saw LNG prices that were, you know, particularly strong. Um, Year-to-date, it's been a little more flat. But I think, you know, broadly there's a lot of um, kind of positive drivers for the global LNG market that this index tries to capitalize on.
0: Stacy, I alluded to this at the uh, top, and I can't remember if I've asked you this on the, uh, the podcast before, but – Going back to the four ETFs I gave the performance on earlier and then just hearing you walk through the composition of of LNGG and and some of the drivers there. And then I also toss in, I think, about the, the types of listeners of ETF Prime. For investors who want exposure to the energy complex using ETFs, I would love to hear how you think they should approach this. Like we just talked about a 20%-plus performance spread between AMLP and XLE. And, and I get that there's this type of disparity in any broad sector, right? If you, if you look at tech ETFs or whatever, there's going to be uh, different ETFs with different return patterns. I think we all get that. But I, I would love to have you offer some sort of framework for how investors might think about allocating towards energy. What, 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 like, what do you view as some of the biggest considerations here?
1: Yeah, well I think you know it really depends what the investor is trying to achieve. If you simply want exposure to this space or you're just trying to match a benchmark, then you probably just want to use one of those default options like Exxon, Chevron, XLE or VDE. Um admittedly it's not necessarily adding value, but it's kind of checking a box and sometimes that's what people want. They don't want to make a call on this space because it's cyclical or they're not comfortable with it. So I can understand people that are coming at it from that angle, and they're just trying to get exposure in an efficient or cheap manner. Um, But, you know, energy can do a lot more for a portfolio than just provide you sector exposure. And so if you want income, for example, you know, the underlying index for MLP is yielding 7.7%, as I mentioned. Um, Often distributions from MLPs or MLP ETFs have tax advantages to them. That might be something that someone wants to look at. Or if you want your broader global energy and natural resource exposure with a nice yield, then you might look at something like Amplify's Natural Resources Dividend Income ETF, um, NDIV. So this is certainly a sector where you can get attractive income. I mean, XLE has a yield you know, probably north of 3%, which isn't terrible, but you can get more enhanced yield if, if you would like that from this space. Um, if someone is, you know, bullish on a particular commodity, you know, for example, if you're bullish on oil, then you might want to consider allocating more to XOP, which focuses on oil and gas producers, um, or another ETF that focuses on oil and gas producers. If you're bullish natural gas or LNG trends, then there are ETFs that focus on natural gas or LNG, like we talked about. Um, but broadly, you know, if you're a generalist, you may not have a lot of conviction in a commodity call. You may not have a lot of comfort there, but I think what people could consider doing is using one of those default options like Exxon, Chevron, XLE, VDE, and then complementing it with something else, like maybe MLPs or midstream if you want kind of more defensive energy exposure and a nice yield. Um, so I think it really depends ultimately on the investor and what they want, but I think the point I would make is just You can have an energy allocation, and it can do a lot more for your portfolio than just give you a sector exposure if you're kind of willing to look beyond those default options.
0: A few minutes left here. You mentioned investors maybe not wanting to make a call on the uh, energy space, maybe not having that conviction. I'm going to put you on the spot to to have you make a call because I believe the next (laughs) time we chat won't be until uh, January at the earliest, if you can believe that. And so would you like to offer a a quick outlook for next year? Uh, What are you watching for across the energy space as we head to uh, 2024?
1: Well, yeah, I think if we kind of look from a commodity price perspective, you know, U.S. natural gas prices probably get directionally better. You know, we'll see what kind of winter we have. Um, Last winter was extremely warm and that kind of decimated prices. Um, but generally i think people are a little more optimistic overall on the price picture for natural gas in 2024 um and then to get particularly more constructive in 2025 so there's a couple of lng export facilities that are expected to come online later in 2024 and into 2025 so that incremental demand um, you should be supportive from a price perspective but my guess is that things will be pretty ho-hum unless we get some extreme winter weather, which we could see some volatility around. But generally, I don't think there's gonna to be too much movement um, from a natural gas price perspective. On the oil side, I think it's a tougher picture. Um, you know, I'll be keeping an eye on demand, what's going on with the economy and how that makes people feel about global oil demand. Um, Certainly on the supply side, we'll be watching OPEC Plus and looking to see what happens with incremental cuts that have been made by Russia and Saudi Arabia. Um, OPEC Plus meets on November 6th, so right around the corner. Um, I feel pretty good about OPEC Plus defending a price level. So I think that helps manage the downside risk in oil if we do see a recession or concerns around the economy. Um, But I'm probably less confident around upside drivers for oil at this point. Um, than maybe I have been. So for me, I think that kind of murky oil picture and probably not too exciting natural gas picture um, would favor remaining fairly defensive in this space. And I think that kind of goes back to midstream and MLPs um, and those companies that generate more stable cash flows and are paying a nice dividend and providing that more defensive exposure. Um, but we'll see. That's, that's what my crystal ball at least looks like at the moment.
0: <laughs> well, Stacey, uh, excellent perspective as always. I always say nobody knows the energy sector better than you do. I really hope you and your family enjoy the uh, Thanksgiving holiday weekend, and thank you for joining me.
1: Thanks so much, Nate. Have a great Thanksgiving.
0: That was Stacey Morris, head of energy research at Vetify.